welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast, number 234. We're no longer simply dealing with with breaches that compromise personal identifiable information or credit cards. Now we're we're talking about compromises of the services upon which we rely on in our daily lives. And that, that paradigm shift has, has really created a, a newfound sense of urgency among my colleagues on both sides of the aisle. Dysfunction seems to be the order of the day on Capitol Hill, where political division has taken center stage and distrust still runs deep after a violent attempt to overturn the November 2020 presidential election on January 6th of 2021. But even in these challenging times, there are areas of cooperation between the two major parties in the United States. And one of those areas is cybersecurity, where recent months have seen some progress in funding improve cyber readiness at the local and national level. One example is the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, a massive stimulus bill passed in November and signed into law by President Biden on November 15th. That bill allocated $2 billion to improve the nation's cyber defenses, That includes a billion in grants to improve state and local government cybersecurity and a quarter billion dollars each to fund cyber improvements to rural and municipal utilities and to develop advanced cybersecurity applications and technologies for the energy sector. Another area of compromise? The K-12 Cybersecurity Act, which was passed into law by President Biden back in October. That bill instructs CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, to examine the risks and challenges that schools face in securing their systems. Our guest this week is one of the co-sponsors of that K-12 Cybersecurity Act and one of the most outspoken advocates for investing in cybersecurity in Congress. Representative Jim Langevin of Rhode Island is an 11-term congressman and a member of the Democratic Party. He's a hawk on cybersecurity and was a driving force behind the creation of the nation's first national cyber director, a role now filled by Chris Inglis, who is a principal advisor to the president on cybersecurity policy and strategy. In this interview, which I recorded with Rep. Langevin back in January, he and I talk about some of the achievements on the cybersecurity front in recent months and whether continued bipartisan cooperation on cybersecurity policy is possible going forward. We also talk about the challenges the nation faces in securing U.S. critical infrastructure like the U.S. electric grid and in attributing cyber attacks attacks to nation-state adversaries like Russia and China. To start out, I asked Representative Langevin about some of the recent headlines regarding cybersecurity, including attacks on Ukrainian government entities and, on the other hand, Russia's recent arrest of members of the Revil ransomware group. My name is Jim Langevin, and for the last 20 years, uh, I've represented the 2nd District of Rhode Island in the United States House of Representatives. Congressman, it's really a pleasure to have you on the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Great to be with you. I guess to start out the conversation, it's actually a fairly uh, busy day in the cybersecurity space. Of course, every day is a busy day, but a couple headline items that have come across that I'd be interested, seeing as I've got a member of the U.S. Congress on the line, to swing by you. The first is, of course, another series of attacks, cyber attacks on um, the government of Ukraine and Ukrainian websites uh, reported this morning with some website defacements. And the other is um, apparently an arrest of a 
ransomware gang in Russia by the Russian authorities uh, at the request of the United States. So um, two two uh, incidents kind of seemingly sending very different messages from Europe. But I'd be interested in your thoughts on what to make of all this. Yeah, well, anytime we can have a, uh, a, a post-government crackdown on ransomware hackers and hackers within their borders, it's a, it's a good day. Uh, I'm not sure how much we can read into this. Uh, you know, Vladimir Putin is a, a tough customer and, and not to be trusted per se. But um, uh, and I, you know, I'm, I am concerned about uh, the buildup of Russian troops uh, uh, on the Ukrainian border, the Russian-Ukrainian border. And so I'm not sure where that's going, but I'm pleased that the Biden administration is getting very tough uh, in, in sending a very clear signal to uh, Putin that crossing into Ukraine will have grave consequences. Uh, certainly economic consequences. Uh, but with respect to the um, what's going on in, in terms of Russia cracking down on uh, ransomware attackers within this border, that's a that's a good thing. Of course, these attacks in Ukraine have been uh, ongoing for years now. Obviously, we saw some really big ones back in 2015, 2016, you know, uh, on the electrical grid there. You know, one of the complications is it's often very hard to firmly attribute um, responsibility for these. There's always kind of plausible deniability about, you know, is this a rogue actor or a cyber criminal group or, you know, kind of what's going on. Um, how do you, is there an easy solution to that problem, I guess? I mean, this is something I'm sure you, you've talked about quite a bit up on Capitol Hill, this issue of attribution. Are these acts of war? Are they just uh, pranks? Are they, you know, um, espionage? What, what do we do about this? Well, you're right that attribution is difficult, but uh, we have to s- not just think about this in terms of cyber terms and and using uh, cyber means to attribute attribution to it, the bad actor who's carrying it out. This yep. is where we need to use all source intelligence to uh, uh, ascribe uh, blame. And that's where working with our international partners and allies is more important than ever. Uh, you know, it, I think of in terms of, and I've used the example often of the uh, the, the screwball poisoning, uh, though not a cyber issue, but there's a case where you know the international community did not have perfect intelligence, but they had enough all-source intelligence where they could connect enough dots to say that attack came from Russia, that was directed by Russia, and we called them out and then imposed sanctions and held them accountable. They would we imposed costs, and that's the type of model we need to use for uh, attributing uh, cyber attacks to bad actors. We have enough intelligence that we should be able to uh, say where it's coming from, who's responsible. And it goes back to the fact that when when host governments are looking the other way, in this case, many often cases, Russia, if they're looking the other way, there has to be uh, a, a consequence to that as well. We need to hold those governments accountable if they're looking the other way, not cracking down on these cyber bad actors within their borders. Um, as you mentioned, you've been in Congress for 20 years. Um, obviously, the you know the the cybersecurity conversation. That's actually about how long I've been writing about cybersecurity. So I know for sure that the cybersecurity conversation has changed quite a bit in that period, and definitely moved closer to the center of you know everything, politics, business. How did you? What was your entree to this as an area of concentration and focus? And um, you know why did it pique your interest? Yeah, so I, I first got involved in the cybersecurity issue by happenstance uh, back around 2007. Um, 
when I took the gavel of the, the Committee on Homeland Security Subcommittee on Emerging Threats. And cybersecurity was in the, within that, uh, that uh, realm of emerging threats. Uh, and uh, we started, uh, I, I was, first became aware of it when I got the Aurora briefing. We know now that's the, the, uh, the Aurora briefing is what identified a serious vulnerability in our electric grid critical infrastructure. And in doing a deep dive on that, finding out that uh, our uh, electric grid was, was not adequately secure. By the way, even though at the time, the electric grid open owners and operators told us, oh no, we're fine, we've got this, you know, it's, you know, it's probably unlikely to happen. And if it did, we, we can handle it. They, they could not, and they were not ready, um, uh, clearly. And it's still a, you know, a work in progress. Things have we've made progress, but you know, it's still, uh, there are still what I would call vulnerabilities. We're not out of the woods yet, especially when you're looking at it, you know, a, a tier one actor, you know, dealing with Russia or China, for example. But um, beyond that, I also did a, a, my first deep dive on the topic while I co-chaired the CSIS Commission on Cybersecurity for the 44th Presidency. And there again, again, it became you know, clear that, that cybersecurity is one of the preeminent national security issues of our time. And since then, uh, I used my position in Congress to push for improvements to our nation's cybersecurity. Uh, I'm the, uh, the co-founder of the Congressional Cybersecurity Caucus, and uh, I'm also the, the chairman of the House Armed Services uh, Subcommittee on um, uh, Cyber uh, Innovative Technologies and Information uh, Systems. And uh, most recently, uh, I've served as a commissioner on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. And I, I have to say that I, I credit the commission and my colleagues on the commission with, with uh, a lot of the legislative progress that we've made on cyber in recent years, but of course we still have a, a lot more work to do. So uh, one of the big um, improvements or successes, achievements, um, was the passage of the um, President Biden's uh, infrastructure bill, uh, had bipartisan support, and that contained, I think, $2 billion in funding for cybersecurity infrastructure improvements across the country. Could you just kind of give us a um, overview of sort of what, what that money is uh, earmarked to do? Yeah, it's a significant investment in both our infrastructure and as well as uh, our cyber infrastructure at the at the same time. So uh, I was proud to vote in favor of that bill. Uh, it's the uh, biggest piece of uh, the biggest piece of it is the one billion dollars that set aside uh, for grants to state and local governments to improve their cybersecurity. Uh, there's also uh, $250 million in uh, available cybersecurity grants for rural and municipal electric utilities and another $250 million for a variety of uh, activities to enhance grid security, including research and development of advanced cybersecurity applications and technologies uh, for the energy sector. Um, beyond that, there's also $157.5 million uh, going to the Department of Homeland Security for critical infrastructure security and resilience research, which uh, could uh, include security testing for telecommunications equipment, uh, industrial control systems, and, and also open source software. Uh, last couple of things I, I really want to mention, uh, through uh, fiscal year 2028, there will be $20 million that will be appropriated annually uh, to a cyber response and recovery fund that will help public and private sector entities respond to and also recover from a, a, a significant cyber incident. And then finally, uh, the kind of the crown jewel of all this is uh, uh, 
it's uh, $21 billion is going to go for the newly established uh, office of the National Cyber Director. That's a, uh, a, a piece of legislation that I've been working on for more than a decade now. Uh, proof that I guess even good ideas take, take a while to get enacted. <laughs> Well-aged. We, <laughs> we, we now have a uh, Senate-confirmed National Cyber Director. Chris Ingalls is the inaugural Cyber Director, and, and we finally were able to get his office funded to the tune of $21 billion through that infrastructure bill. Why does that matter? Why do we need a um, uh, 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 somebody at the head of a of a government cybersecurity or you know kind of a more centralized function? Because that's been a topic of debate over the years. You know uh, whether to you know do this at this sort of agency level or whether we need a you know cybersecurity um, a centralized cybersecurity function within the federal government. Yeah. So we have long needed a head coach on the on the playing field, if you will. Since I'm a huge Patriots fan, we need a Bill Belichick that's going to tie all our <laughs> policy together and yeah. make it all work. And someone that will, first of all, be the uh, principal advisor to the, the president on cybersecurity issues, will have a hand in, in reviewing the budgets of departments and agencies uh, to make sure that they are doing what they need to do on cyber. It's going to make sure that pull together all the, the, the cyber policies, if you will, of the of the um, the federal government to make sure that we're, all the orders are being pulled in, in in the same direction. So again, it's something that's long overdue, and uh, we're really pleased to you know that we we do have a, a national cyber director uh, at the helm now. Um, one of the pieces of legislation you helped get passed was a, a bill to provide cybersecurity support to K through twelve school districts. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what's in that bill and kind of how that came about? Uh, that was something that actually passed the Senate and the House and, and went on uh, to President Biden's desk. So uh, talk about that. That's right. So, you know, first of all, we need to make sure that when we're talking about cybersecurity, it's not just at the, uh, the, the, the top levels and, and from government's perspective or just talking about the, the electric grid, right? We need to make sure that we have a holistic approach to strengthen our cybersecurity. And that includes uh, more cybersecurity awareness for the general public, but it also means kind of baking this in at the very earliest ages that thinking about cybersecurity is a forethought rather than an afterthought. The Israelis are very good at this. And they, for example, and they, you know, they push this through their, their education system. That's the type of thing we're gonna make sure that we're, we're doing with our K through 12 education is raising the level of, of awareness and, and training at, uh, uh, the K through 12 uh, level. I mean, you, you look at the Israeli government, they also do a fair amount of recruiting at the K through 12 level of, you know, finding kids who are talented, whether it's in math or, you know, computers and really kind of pulling, obviously they've got a, a mandatory national service um, right. program, military service. So that that's a conduit to, to kind of pull those folks in and get them trained up. But um, something like that uh, work here in the United States? Something akin to that, yes. I, I think that uh, we need a more holistic approach to educating our kids on cyber as well as yeah. uh, educating the, the general public. I've often called for um, kind of a, a Smokey the Bear campaign for cyber awareness and need to practice good cyber yeah. hygiene. Uh, so many of, of these cyber intrusions or attacks could be prevented if, if everyone practiced good cyber hygiene. Uh, now you're not going to be able to defend against you know the the the, the tier one actors uh, like say Russia or China if there's a 
you know, the, the German cyber attack, they get very sophisticated. You know, the uh, Solar Winds is a, is a perfect example, or uh, even uh, Log4j. Uh, these are, you know, these are, these are significant uh, focused, uh, you know, attacks. Mm -hmm. or but for the, the vast majority of them, right, they, it's, it's someone not patching their computer, not having a strong password, mm -hmm. uh, you know, things that, that are imminently, imminently preventable. So I always encourage people to, you know, have a strong password, update your security patches. And again, it will go a long way to preventing a lot of these cyber intrusions or attacks from happening in the first place. Yeah. You mentioned solar winds and, and you know, obviously there's, there have been a series of uh, so-called software supply chain attacks, uh, Kaseya, Code Cove. I mean, the, the, it seems pretty clear that the bad guys, particularly like you said, the tier one kind of China nation state adversaries are focusing on uh, companies that produce software or provide services and, and hack one of those. And you've got hundreds or thousands of, of other victims that you've now gained access to. Is there a role uh, for the federal government in addressing this threat, given that it is really everywhere? You know, I mean, there's open source software and proprietary software, all of it potentially a, a target. Yeah, well, it, this has to be a a public-private partnership. You know, I think one of the most important things about cybersecurity funding in the bill that you know we were talking about uh, is that it gets resources to entities that need it the most. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, too many state and local governments, as well as uh, yeah. local and municipal utilities, have traditionally not had the resources that need to improve their their cybersecurity. And you know, the importance of making those improvements cannot be cannot be overstated. So. Yeah, I really agree with you. I, I work on a local, uh, my volunteer in my local towns, you know, IT advisory committee and, and um, here in, I'm in Belmont, Massachusetts. Um, and, you know, the local, you know, so much in our country is really comes down to local politics and local funding as well. And, um, and that includes IT and cybersecurity, you know, it's like, you know, dealing with the same budget constraints that the, the school and the town are, you know, trying to get the cybersecurity stuff addressed. And it, right. it's a, it's a real right. limitation. You know, it, you know, we're no longer, you know, simply dealing with, with breaches that compromise personal identifiable information or yeah. cards. You know, we're now we're, we're talking about compromises of the services upon which we rely on in our daily lives. And that that paradigm shift has, has really created a, a newfound sense of urgency among my colleagues on both sides of the aisle. Uh, so glad to see and welcome any kind of bipartisanship we can get these days in Washington. And, you know, there's is right now there's an understanding that we have uh, not only an opportunity but also an obligation to work together on bipartisan legislation to to address the, the cyber threats to the American people. I mean, you anticipated my next question, which is uh, cybersecurity has been one of the few areas where there's actually bipartisan consensus and where, as as we've mentioned, you know, Congress has been able to get some legislation passed and signed into law. Um, and uh, I'm wondering if you see that cooperation continuing as the, you know, kind of polarization and, and you know, uh, tenor of the political discourse kind of deteriorates. Um, do you see that bipartisan consensus continuing? And if so, what is next on the roadmap? I, you know, traditionally, cybersecurity has always been fairly uh, bipartisan. And, you know, we, we've seen the, the cyber threat landscape really grow uh, explosively over the past few years. And uh, the rise of ransomware is, is a particularly concerning trend because it increases the cost uh, of cyber insecurity for, for many Americans. 
And so um, we've seen uh, more bipartisanship on, on cybersecurity, I think, than we've seen on most any other issue. And uh, uh, proud to work with many of my colleagues across the aisle to, to try to strengthen our cybersecurity. And, you know, guys like Mike Gallagher, who is uh, one of the co-chairs of the, uh, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, uh, ben Sass on the on the Senate side, who helped create the Solarium Commission in the first place, and of course uh, Angus King, um, and uh, uh, you know this is this is an area where we where we we really and that it's one of the reasons I love serving on national security sub on committees of the Armed Services Committee and the Homeland Security Committee is because if you're ever going to find bipartisanship, it's it's going to come about where where our nation's security is is at stake. At risk. Final question. Um, one of the one of the kind of endemic problems in information security is is finding and developing talent uh, workers to fill a lot of jobs. Um, and I know there was some money, I think, in the infrastructure plan for that. Um, maybe some more earmarked in Build Back Better. Um, so, what are your thoughts on? Um, you know, solving that chronic problem of, you know, cybersecurity worker shortages and availability uh, out there, both in the private sector and as we were talking about in the public sector as well. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're spot on. And I, I've often said that, you know, we could have all the great uh, cyber policies in the world, but if we don't have the people to implement them, uh, we're not going to get very far. So um, workforce development is absolutely critical. And, uh, you know, I think this funding can aid uh, cyber for workforce development, uh, which is, uh, you know, as you correctly noted, is a, is a huge need for our country. As an example, part of the $250 million for enhanced grid security, as I mentioned earlier, will go uh, to workforce development curricula for energy sector related cybersecurity. Uh, obviously, um, you know, more has to be done to address the cybersecurity talent shortage that we have both in government and in the private sector. Uh, but you know, investments in, in primary and, and secondary education are, are also critical to uh, to ensure that the next generation of cyber professionals have the exposure to uh, cyber education early on. Uh, I'm also a big fan of the Cyber Core program, which is a scholarship for service uh, program, and uh, and we also need uh, to invest in and expand pathways that we already have from the government side. Uh, part of that will be improving institutional interoperability, allowing employees to cross between different uh, departments and agencies. So we're excited about uh, what Homeland is doing there. It, it also means improving the, the pay flexibility, of course, to, to make government a more competitive destination for cyber talent. So I, I hope to see the Department of Homeland Security's new cyber talent management system set an example for the rest of the interagency in this regard. And, and you know, of course, I've often said the federal government cannot simply seek to increase its share of the pie when it comes to cybersecurity talent. We, we really do need to grow the entire pie itself as a whole and alleviate cybersecurity workforce shortages across the ecosystem. So you know, there are private sector entities that are also doing great work in, in this space, and, and we should support those efforts where we can. Looking forward, I, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what Director Inglis can accomplish with his, his new funding. Uh, Office of National Cyber Director was a major again, legislative priority of mine for over a decade before we got it done. And uh, Chris is the right person at the right time for the right job. And uh, he's going to ensure that the, the federal government's focus on cybersecurity will be a unified and consistent national priority. I also think that the, the state and local cybersecurity grants are sorely 
needed to help the barrage of cyber attacks, including ransomware attacks that uh, those institutions are facing. And I'm also, I'm, I'm really excited about the, the resources that the Department of Homeland Security is um, receiving for critical infrastructure, security and, and resilience research. Um, as I mentioned, uh, you know, these can be used for research related uh, to the open source software security, given uh, the fallout we've seen from Log4j vulnerability. That kind of research is, is critical to improving the security of our, of our broader uh, cyber ecosystem. And the last thing I'll, I'll mention, I give a lot of credit to President Biden and the Biden administration for their work on, on cybersecurity. They've done more than any of the previous administration, um, both in terms of policies, but also uh, the people we have in place. Director Easterly at, at CISA, uh, we've got Ann Newberger, who's Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber, and now Chris Inglis as the, the National Cyber Director. So a rock star team, and uh, you know, just uh, you know, really long overdue to have these you know, major chess pieces, if you will, on the, on the playing field now and all of the policies. Uh, we are going to make great strides in better protecting our, our nation in cyberspace. Well, I thank you for all your hard work, uh, Representative, and um, really thank you also for taking the time to come on our podcast. You bet. Thanks for having me on. Great speaking with you. We'll do it again. Representative Jim Langevin is the U.S. Representative for Rhode Island's 2nd Congressional District. Representative Langevin recently announced his decision not to run for re-election after 11 terms in Congress. 